Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here on this Memorial Day weekend to worship the living God. My message today, again, is out of the book of Genesis. If you'll go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I want to speak to you on the subject, reality check. Reality check. Now, when Noah and his family emerged from the ark after the flood, they found that everything, and I mean everything, had changed. The topography of the earth was different. Friends and extended family were no longer here because they were swept away in the judgment of God. Only eight people emerged from the ark to begin a new life in a new world. At this time, Noah was over 600 years old. He had been a righteous and godly man for his entire life. He had great faith in God, so much faith in God that he is included in the the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This is why God chose him to build the ark so that life could be preserved. With this new beginning, Noah and his family were tasked by God with a very big objective. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and get this, and fill the earth. Eight people with the responsibility of filling the earth. It didn't take long for the realities of life to hit them square in the face. Let's follow the story beginning in Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The Bible says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham, And Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. You know, we are prone to categorize people by the color of their skin, or or by their country of origin, or by their language. However, I want you to understand that biblically speaking, there is only one race. There's only one race. It's the human race. But there are three families that make up the human race, and that's exactly what Moses wrote about here in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. Now, if you look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, we're going to dip into chapter 10 several times today. The Bible says in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. By the way, when those three guys are mentioned, it's always in that order. It's always Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth 
were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javon, Tubal, Meshach, and Tirus. And, and then I want you to notice verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Misraim, Put, and Canaan. And I want you to notice also verse 21. The Bible says, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. Now look in verse 32 of chapter 10. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So these first two verses of Genesis chapter uh, 9, verse 18 and 19, prepare us for the first reality of life. Now, we're going to look at three realities of life. And I want to tell you, they are, very, they are big ticket items. Here's the first reality of life. Number one, the problem of sin. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. Now, obviously, there was some time lapse after they got off the ark. I mean, you don't, you don't plant a vineyard and, and raise grapes and, and develop wine in a course of three days or three weeks or three months. We're talking several years here. So Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. The problem of sin. This is the first time that wine and drunkenness is meant, are mentioned in the Bible. And it's not a pretty picture at all. Keep in mind that some time had passed and, and now Noah was evidently, maybe he was tired. Maybe he needed to unwind. I don't know. But whatever the case, he began to drink some fermented wine. And as a result... He got drunk and he passed out. He passed out buck naked in his tent. Not a pretty picture. Now let me say this. Alcohol suppresses one's awareness. It suppresses one's recognition of right and wrong. And it suppresses one's uh, inhibitions. So Noah and his family were spared the judgment of God, but here they are, this mighty man of God, this man that God called righteous and godly, and he's drunk as Cooter Brown. I mean, just drunk as Cooter Brown. Now, understand this. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their families still had a sin nature. Now, they were spared the judgment of God, not because they were perfect, but they were spared the judgment of God by the sheer grace and mercy of God. They had a sin nature. By the way, do you know you've got a sin nature? Do you know that you are prone to sin? I know you know that, and you may not admit it, but it's true. You are prone to sin because you have a sin nature. Why, if 
Noah can sin. Anybody can sin, right? That's true. Here's a core truth. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, you, you, you're, you're tempted and you say something, you do something, or, or you, 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 you think something that you shouldn't think, say, or do, and you know you shouldn't do it, and it's a sin against God. By the way, every sin is first and foremost a sin against God. It's a sin against God. Now, you can spin it any way you want to, but whether... You, you classify it as a little sin or a big sin. I'll tell you, every sin is a sin against a holy and righteous and perfect God. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Romans 3.23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The person to your left, the person to your right, the person in front of you, the person behind you, the people in your family. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. There's not a single one of us that's going to skate through life with absolute perfection. We blow it. That's why husbands and wives argue. That's why kids rebel. That's why people drink too much. That's why people say things they shouldn't say and do things they shouldn't do. Why many people in the Bible live for God when they were young, but as they got older, they departed from the ways of God. Some of the heroes of the faith. You know why I know that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God? Let me tell you why. Because if, if I were writing the Bible... I would make sure that the heroes, if they did anything wrong, I would leave it out because I wouldn't want to make them look good, right? But you notice that Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land because he sinned late in life. God told him, Moses, speak to the rock and I'll bring water out for the people of Israel. But what did Moses do? He got angry with the people and he struck the rock, defying God and, 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 and spoiling the holiness of God in his life. And God didn't let him go into the promised land as a result. That happened late in life. And now think of David. David sinned with Bathsheba. The sin of adultery had her husband murdered. And guess how old he was? He was in his 50s. He was in his 50s. He was a man after God's own heart, done great exploits for God, loved God with all of his heart, but he blew it in his 50s. And then think about Solomon. Solomon started out well, but he ended terribly. I mean terribly. Now listen, don't forget this. Past success does not ensure future victory. You know what that means for us? It means we got to keep our head on the swivel. It means that we have to make sure 
that we are on guard all the time against the attack of the enemy in our lives. And when he tempts us, we, we have the authority under Jesus to say no. But will we say no when we are tempted? Will we say no to the devil and yes to God? Now listen, understand this. The problem of sin is, is an individual thing, but it's also a corporate thing. I promise you this, and it's evident within our text today, that sin has a, a ripple effect. While you take a stone and you go out into a lake and you throw that stone into the lake, what's going to happen? There are going to be ripples that go out from where that stone entered the water, right? And I'm tell you, there's a ripple effect to sin in our lives. If a dad sins against God, his kids are going to be impacted. His wife is going to be impacted. His co-workers are going to be impacted. Understand this. There's nobody who can say, well, sin is my problem. It's me, pastor. It's not going to affect anybody else. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It will affect other people. It will break their hearts. It will crush them. Genesis chapter 9, verse 22 and 23, we see that ripple effect of sin, the sin of Noah. The Bible says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Remember, where, where was Noah? He was buck naked in his tent, passed out. He saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Evidently Ham, Noah's youngest son, according to verse 24 of our text, saw his father in this compromised condition. And he gloated over Noah's failure. He found his brothers and he mocked his father to his brothers about his father's condition inside the tent. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 9, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. Shem and Japheth were grieved over the situation with their dad while Ham gloated over the sin and the failure of his dad. Ham definitely needed a reality check. Let me ask you a question. Do you need a reality check? How many of you raising teenagers have said to a son or daughter, Hey, you need a reality check. We've all said that. And maybe there are people in this room today who need a reality check when it comes to the problem of sin in their lives. Listen, we live in an age where we see sin everywhere, and the danger is because we see sin everywhere, therefore we see sin nowhere, not even in our own lives. 
That is a dangerous place to be. Do you need a reality check about the problem of sin in your life? Listen, if the Holy Spirit of God puts his finger on a sin in your life, here's here's the best way to handle it. Confess it to God and forsake it. Admit it and quit it. I encourage you, deal with sin in your life before that sin deals with you. Here's a second reality that we look at in our text today, and I love this one. This, is, this, this reality is something that absolutely blew me away in my study this week. And that reality is not only the problem of sin, but the glory of God. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 24 to 27, the Bible says, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Now, how did he know? Bible doesn't say. Maybe he knew that he went to bed without any clothes on and he woke up covered by his two sons. Shem and Japheth, we're not sure exactly how he knew, but he knew. Verse 25, so he said, cursed be Canaan. Wait wait a minute now. Ham is the one who mocked his dad. And yet the Bible says that Noah cursed Canaan, who was the son of Ham, Noah's grandson, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is, without a doubt, one of the most fascinating portions of Scripture I have ever studied. The glory of God is manifested by the fact that he exercises sovereign control over the nations. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 18 that God is the potter and we are the clay. God is a potter, the nations are the clay. And the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 18 that God has this sovereign authority and power to uproot a nation, and God has a sovereign authority and power to plant a nation. That's what gives me so much pause about America. Listen, the day is coming. When God is going to say enough is enough for America. And we'll go the way of nations in the past who had their prime, had their moment in history, and they, they become like, a, like a, a forgotten dream, a forgotten part of the world's, uh, on the world stage. L- listen. The LGBTQ movement in America 
is a stench in the nostril of God. Now, let me, let me say this. The God of heaven loves every person who is enslaved by that, those actions and those attitudes. He loves them. Let me tell you, God sent his son Jesus to save homosexuals, to save lesbians, to save transgendered people, to save anybody and everywhere regardless of their sin. And we need to understand that. And here's something we don't need. We don't need to turn into ham and gloat over people's sin. You know what we ought to do? We ought to be like Shem and Japheth, and we ought to grieve over the sin of people and get Je speak Jesus to them like we just sang about. But on a, 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 a wider margin, I want you to understand that what's happening in America with all of the, the wokeness, is absolutely a stench in the nostrils of God. And I'm telling you, God's going to bring judgment on this nation if we don't repent. And we got to do our part. Now, let me give you a little context. I wasn't planning on saying all that. But man, I'm telling you, I'm so burdened. Moses authored Genesis. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. And he wrote this section of the Word of God sometime between the Exodus in 1446 B.C. and the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which was around 1406 B.C. The first time this was read, these first five books of the Bible was read to the people of Israel was prior to their entrance into the promised land. So the destiny, listen to this, the destiny of any nation, whether it be America, whether it be Israel, whatever nation it is, lies in the hands of the Most High God. Not in their wealth, not in their military power and strength, not in their natural resources, the destiny of any and all nations lies in the hands of God. Let me tell you, God can take down China just like that. God can take down Iran just like that. God can take down America just like that. God is sovereign and in control of every nation on the face of the planet. A nation's destiny is determined by the response to God and to his word. So let's look at the prophecy concerning Canaan. Now Noah calls it a curse, it's a curse, but it also has a prophetic uh, sense to it in that it would happen way in the future, okay? If you look at Genesis chapter 10, verse six, you will notice that Ham had four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, Canaan. Why is it important that we know about Canaan? And why is the son of Ham cursed? And what is the significance of that? Well, Canaan was declared by God to be a servant to both Shem and Japheth. 
I want you to see that the, the land of Canaan is referred to 35 times in the book of Genesis alone. 35 times. This is the first nation in history that God cursed. The nation of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 15 through 19, you say, well, what is the nation of Canaan? Well, here it is right here in Genesis 10, 15 to 19. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Ooh, a lot of ites here. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended, now notice it, extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. That's the territory of the Canaanites. The descendants of Canaan would come to be known for their sexual perversion and for their blatant idolatry. Look at God's instructions to the Jews prior to entering the land of Canaan, the promised land. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 and 25. God gives this instruction to the people of Israel. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So many people today talk about how uh, it was so unfair of God to punish the Canaanites and take their land away from them and give it to the people of Israel. But their land was defiled because they shook their, face, their, their fist in the face of God and they gave themselves over to blatant idolatry and sexual perversion. And God said, enough is enough. When their land became defiled and God said, enough was enough, he gave their land to the Jewish people, the descendants of Shem. Look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, this is just before they went in, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, the Bible says, as for all the peoples who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, listen to this, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly, from them Solomon levied forced laborers even to this day. In other words, they became servants to the descendants of Shem, 
and the descendants of Japheth. God is a potter. The nations are the clay. The truth of Canaan's future was revealed to Noah several millennia before it actually took place. Let's look at the prophecy concerning Shem. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, the Bible says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He said, this is a great blessing because it is a new step in the Old Testament's unfolding messianic prophecies. The first messianic prophecy was in Genesis 3.15, in which the deliverer was promised who should crush the serpent's head. It is evident as the story of Genesis unfolds that he will appear in the godly line of Seth rather than the ungodly line of Cain. Now, in a prophecy made following the flood, the line of descent is narrowed to the Semitic peoples who descended from Shem and whose story is particularly unfolded in the remainder of Genesis. In time, the promise is narrowed still further to the house of David and to his descendants, Joseph and Mary. The prophecy of blessing is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was through Shem that the royal line led to Abram, to the Jewish people, to David, to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at the prophecy concerning Japheth, verse 27. And may God enlarge Japheth And let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now God promised to extend the territory of Japheth. In his sovereignty, God moved the descendants of Japheth north of the promised land. From there they spread westward into Europe and eastward into India and the surrounding Asian territory. And God also promised that the descendants of Japheth would live in the tents of Shem. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that they would enter into spiritual blessing by their association with the God of Shem, the one true creator God. Abram was one of Shem's descendants. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, very important. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God's magnificent plan of salvation flows through Shem, Abram, to David, to Jesus, to the entire world. The gospel is for all the nations of the world. Well, when you come to the book of Acts in the New Testament, Peter preached to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Those are the descendants of Shem. And then Philip shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. 
a descendant of Ham. And Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius, a descendant of Japheth. The glory of God is a reality that must not be ignored. The, the fingerprints of the glory of God are all over this text in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Genesis. Let me ask you, do you need a re reality check? Do you? Do you need a reality check about the problem of sin? Do you need a reality check about the glory of God? Listen, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and, listen, and we are most satisfying to him. Here's the third reality I want to bring to your attention today as we talk about a reality check. Number three, the certainty of death. The certainty of death. Look how Genesis chapter 9 ends, verse 28 and 29. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Our, our main text in Genesis 9, 18 to 29 begins with sin and it ends with death. That's the headline that could be written over all of our lives Every single one of us, the headline could be sin and death. It's a reality. So I want you to hear the word of God. In Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is what? Talk to me. The wage of sin is death. Death. And, and we wonder why our loved ones die. And we, sometimes we even get angry with God when a loved one dies. But I want you to understand that the reality is simply this, that because we sin, we die. We don't die because God gets angry with us and pulls a plug on us. No, we die because we've sinned against a holy and righteous God and death is a consequence of sin in our lives. In Hebrews 9, 27, the Bible says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. In James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, come now you say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's reality. Have you ever heard someone say, perception is reality? You ever heard somebody say that? Can I just tell you that is a blatant distortion of truth? Perception is not reality. That's one of the problems in our culture today. A little boy perceives that he's a little girl, but he's not. A little girl perceives that she's a little boy, but she's not. A church member perceives that 
he or she is not really a sinner. Or, or they perceive that God's so good that he'll bring everybody to heaven. There are many ways to God. I'm telling you, friend, perception is not reality. The truth of the Word of God is reality. Amen. That's the fact. Dale Tackett made this statement. He said, from the simple to the complex, we misinterpret reality more often than we'd like to admit. Sometimes the stakes are small, but when it comes to worldview questions, the stakes are high and faulty beliefs can cost us dearly. That's why living in reality is so important. The fact is, one day you are going to die, and you've got your life to prepare for that moment. The, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You don't know when you're going to die. You say, well, pastor, I, I'm a teenager. I, I've, I, I've got life under control. I've got life to live, pastor. And just this weekend, a boy who just graduated from high school went out into the ocean with his friends. He jumped off the boat, and they've never seen him again. He died. 18 years old, dead as a hammer. Do you think he was prepared for that? Do you, do you, I hope and pray he was prepared to die. I hope and pray. See, here's what we ought to do. We ought to live every single moment of our life getting ready for the day we meet God. Are you prepared? I hope and pray you are. So I ask you one last time. Do you need a reality check? When it comes to the problem of sin. When it comes to the glory of God and when it comes to the certainty of death. In all likelihood, there are people who have been listening to this message and they're from the descendants of Japheth. Most Americans are from the descendants of Japheth. And maybe there's some from the family of Ham. And possibly even the family of Shem. Listen, the God of Shem has provided salvation and eternal life through his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, all three of these families were represented? The descendants of Shem were there. They were the Jews, and they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And, and at least one descendant of Ham was there, Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus to Calvary. And the descendants of Japheth were there, the Romans, who pronounced him guilty and pronounced the descendants of crucifixion. And Jesus died on a cross for all three families 
the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Shem, and the descendants of Japheth. Jesus is your only hope. And I invite you today to turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can give you victory over the problem of sin, the power of sin, and even the presence of sin one day in heaven. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. I'm going to ask our staff to come. And I want to invite you to respond to God today. What are you going to do with God? What are you going to do with his word today? I hope and pray that you do exactly what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would move with power and authority this moment. I pray, oh God, in heaven that we'd see people saved that we'd see lives changed, that we'd see victories won, strongholds broken for your glory. In Jesus' name.